Good Wednesday morning, everyone. We are doing something a little bit different today. John was asked to speak at Mobile, Alabama at a CMBA conference, a winter conference for students. And so you are going to be listening to that talk. This is going to be talk three and the final talk in Mobile, Alabama. Those of you at the back, you know, it might be nice if you came to the front, it would be a bit more intimate and it, it might write a bit more firmly on your heart some of the things that you need to take home with you. But you can sit where you like. Um, I want to begin by doing something that I do every day that I learned from Simone Bay, the great uh, French writer, about the Lord's Prayer. She was Jewish and a very quirky lady, brilliant in many, many ways. Uh, and she became a Christian. And she discovered the Lord's Prayer, which we take so for granted. But she, had, she said, there's nothing in Judaism like this. She couldn't stop saying it for a week. And she suggests that you start your day by when you wake up, before you move, say the Lord's Prayer twice. Let's do it first together. Uh, just recite it. Bow your heads and we all know it. Just say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Now when you've done that, he suggests, you, you say it again quietly to yourself, and you ask the Lord to stop you somewhere. Some bit of the Lord's Prayer that can strike you in a different way. For that particular day, you may not know why at the time. Uh, and what you, you, you don't go on then, you stop there. You could start with the very first word, couldn't you, and stop. If we wrote the Lord's Prayer, would the first word be our? It wouldn't, would it? It would almost certainly be mine. But Jesus said, no, it's I. That can put you in a difficult position for the whole of the rest of the day because your relationship to your brother and sister and to your unbelieving colleagues is now different or should be. And Jesus actually says, when you pray, say, our, our Father. He doesn't say if you feel like it, which is an interesting thought, isn't it? It's not just a model prayer. He says, say this every time. He also will come back to this a little later because what I want to do this morning in a very short time is take a few of the spiritual disciplines that have been helpful to me, especially in relation to medicine, spiritual and intellectual. Uh, and hope that some of them will find a resting place with you. Um, and I, I can think of one girl who came to Augustine uh, who was struggling in all sorts of ways. She said, the most important th thing I, I learned in those eight months is how to say the Lord's Prayer. But that will change the rest of her life because she had hang-ups that 
cannot survive the constant reminder of what the Lord says about us. Um, so, now we'll take just a moment, a few moments, uh, while I do it too. Um, so go through and ask the Lord to stop you. And then meditate for a minute or two on wherever he stops you. So John actually took a few minutes here and stood in silence as they were meditating, but I've gone ahead and cut that out. But if you'd like to pause, you can pause that here and do that yourself. Otherwise, we're going to jump right back into his talk. Well, I was very brief on my part. You can, it can easily take a quarter of an hour. Uh, and your day will be different. The last time it happened to me was, I mean, I've been going around for 80 years. I never noticed this. Um, most of our prayer meetings in church, aren't they? They're, they're what I call supermarket prayers. Lord, give me this, this, and this, and what's on special this week. That's not prayer. You can't pray the Lord's Prayer and then go to supermarket prayer. And it's very interesting, the juxtaposition of things. And the one that hadn't hit me until uh, relatively recently is when you get to that point, he says, uh, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. That for God, yeah, he knows we, we need to eat today, especially in some parts of the world, more than America, you need not to eat in America quite frequently. But, uh, and you could change the Lord's Prayer. I don't think he'd mind that at all. He'd say, uh, give us this day the ability to fast. That would be a good thing for Americans to do. Uh, but the next thing he, he says is forgive us our trespasses. He's talking about what really matters in life. And if you went to think in the physical sense, you can't live without food indefinitely. I mean, most Americans could live for six months without food. Uh, I once saved, starved a, a, a Brit who should have been an American for a whole year. Uh, he had no food. He um, was perfectly all right. Um, we're, we're designed for fasting. We're not designed for hypercaloric feeding, which is what we do in hospital a lot of the time. So, but the next thing he puts right next to it is, forgive us our trespasses. Well, this is not unique to Christ's behavior. Can you think of anywhere else where he talks about things that we want, blessedness, and he does much the same thing? It's in the, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who see the truth about themselves, they already have the kingdom. In other words, make us truth-seeking missiles, if you like. Um, but the next thing is, blessed are those that mourn. Do you really think that's true? Now, it's an aphorism. It's got to be unpacked. What Jesus is saying, I think, is something like this. When you see the truth about yourself, it's always bad news, except that you are redeemed. But you, as the individual that the modern world says can do anything, which is a lie, uh, it, you only become what you should be when you return to the relationship with God that you are designed for. And truth is the starting point. But it's not enough. I was talking just before this started about the verse that, uh, where this is worked out in a very practical setting, but what did he say? I think he said something like this. It is not enough just to face the truth about yourself. Now you must repent. You've got to see that truth. And you've got to say, I'm sorry, 
in a very, very deep way. And what, what happens then? You're comforted. And that word needs unpacking too. So, repentance, can you do it at will? You can't, can you? You can say sorry. Is that repentance? Maybe. Mostly not. Uh, men and women are different on this too. Men say sorry and don't mean it. Uh, women refuse to say it at all. In our household. Uh, the nearest Sally gets to saying sorry when she really should is I get a new shirt that I don't need. Uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. We're different at that level. But repentance is a gift. And you'll find it in the RSV translation of the, the gospel coming to the Gentiles, where Peter had to uh, go to a Gentile for the first time in his life. He'd never eaten in a Gentile home. He'd probably never been in a Gentile home. And he gets inside and they then have the temerity to get saved and the Holy Spirit fall on them. I do not think he was happy about it. I mean, in some sense he must have been, but in another sense he was saying, what on earth am I going to say to the guys in Jerusalem? They were not ready for it. This was the beginning of the gospel going to the Gentiles. And Luke, wonderful writer, Luke, and the RSV, because they care about things, you get the words right. Uh, they, they don't think they know the answer. There are two sorts of translators in principle. Those who are concerned that the words are properly translated and those who think they know what the text means and they translate it to get their meaning. Very different Bibles. But in the RSV, which I think is the best for this one, Luke says this, and I can see these old Jews sitting around, and they look at one another and say, then to the Gentiles also, God has given the gift of repentance. The gift. We can't do it. We have to ask for it. I mean, there is a, all these things are available, but not quite in the simplistic fashion that we like to think. Jesus says, why don't you ask, seek, and knock? But you need that prolonged process of getting to answers, because otherwise you won't take them as seriously. You won't get inside them in the way you should. Lewis says the same thing. Um, I used to, there's lots of talks of mine out there where I've misquoted this. I haven't, but I have, If you see, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. Uh, the bit that I, I want to talk to you about, I used to say, is at the end of the first chapter. But I have in my possession the original booklets, the, the four booklets that, that are, were published by BBC because uh, C.S. Lewis gave me a Christianity during the war as a talk on the third program in short bits, chapter, chapter length bits. Can you imagine a Western country that would sit down and listen to a chapter of C.S. Lewis being read on the radio? And it had a, it had a huge following, four broadcast talks. They're probably quite valuable now, but C.S. Lewis collectors, many of them don't even know where mere Christianity came from. So in the four broadcast talks, for me, it's the end of the first chapter. But in actual fact, it's further on. But you can find it for yourself about the third chapter. But he says this, repentance is not something 
God demands of us that he could forego if he wishes. Repentance is simply a description of what coming to God is like. Got it? Repentance is a description of what coming to God is like. Just think of the people in the Bible who had a close encounter with God. Did they jump up and down and start singing happy, happy clappy songs? Is that what happens? No. What happens? You fall flat on your face. Even the great apostle John on the Isle of Patmos when Christ turned up, he was flat on his face. Isaiah. Have to be lifted up. That's what happens. That's the gift of repentance. When it's really important, it will be accompanied by tears. There's that verse in the Psalm 190. My eyes weep floods of tears because people will not follow your word. Have you ever wept for your society? I haven't. I've come close on occasion, but never really done it because it's a gift and I haven't received it yet. Done it at an individual level. The only thing that brings me to tears, uh, I nearly did it yesterday morning, um, is grace. When grace erupts into a situation, that just blows me away every time. The real thing. It is extraordinary, undeniable, permanent. And that person's world has changed. Uh, Yes, you can have people who can work up an audience and have them in tears. I can even do that on occasions, but that's not what it's about. It's just something that happens to you. And then you get comforted. And even that word needs some real thought. I'm going to destroy what you mean by comfort now, but replace it with something much more demanding and much more worth going after. The best picture of it that I know is on the bio-tapestry. And there's a little bit of it that has underneath Bishop Oddo comforting the troops. It's all about warfare. And Bishop Oddo has got in his hand a staff with a chain and a spike ball on the end. Got the picture? And he's lifting it up and he's behind the troops comforting them. That's the Holy Spirit, the comforter driving you into bracket battle. That's real comfort. When you repent, you're now going to be driven into battle. Now, depending on your heart, it will come in different ways. I have an illustration of that in my own life, so, which is what we're told to do. Uh, go tell what the Lord has done for you. Um, I was it brought to mind this morning, so talking to these three young ladies, earlier. Um, when I got bullied out of my ivory tower, I mean, if you're made to be a professor, it is a lovely life. Um, when you don't need notes for lectures, that then you know you're a professor. When people have to stop you talking, uh, that's the way it goes. Lovely. One of my best friends a little while ago was uh, introducing a, an elderly scholar at the university and he needed help to get up the, to the lecture, and he was doddery. And as he went up the steps, he turned to Graham and said, what am I talking about? <laughs> and he gave it, oh, yes, yes, he said, and away he went. An hour, not, not a note, perfect. Uh, 
it's like you see a sportsman, he, he doesn't have to think about how he does or he does, does he? He just loves doing it. You see people striking a ball coming at them at over 100 miles an hour, hitting it 400 meters, you know. That's, it's impossible to, to do that. Your nervous system is not capable, but it is. Or F1 drivers who drive up behind a new boy on the back straight at 200 kilometers an hour and put their front tire on his back tire to see how cool he is. Little pop of smoke in his mirror. Uh, God made us those kinds of things, but you do it intellectually as well, make connections. So uh, dragged out of my ivory tower by students primarily, uh, and then David Stevens, somebody warned me, said, you be careful the Americans, they'll they'll extract everything they can and leave you exhausted but it hasn't worked out that way uh i had no idea what was happening to me uh david stevens suddenly called me out of nowhere because i had written this little booklet i hadn't written it actually at that stage i had or i had written it but it wasn't available to him uh, this was published only in the cmda canada uh journal only two thousand copies it was written in about three hours one afternoon in sheer anger. I was steaming with rage when I was writing it because our Department of Education sent a missive around the university saying that I had to teach from a morally neutral position and do medicine from a morally neutral position. You've probably heard phrases like that. It's commonplace now, isn't it? Morally neutral. Think about what that means. It's an incoherent, utterly false statement. You cannot do medicine without answering the question that the patient is asking, which is essentially what ought I to do? That's a moral question. It has to have ultimately a moral answer. We cover it up in whatever ways we can. Uh, what they're saying, these silly people writing these rules, is you must take my idea of morality into your clinic and into your day-to-day -day relationships instead of your own. And there's this root is rooted, as in the case that came to me, a paper they couldn't get published, so they sent it around the university, because um, they could do that, they had the power to do it, as though it was sent from heaven. Well, what guides how I live my life did come from heaven. Yours is not in the same league. So I started writing, and uh, three hours later, I'd finished this thing, there's quotations in it and everything. I didn't have to look anything up, it just flowed. It was lovely to write. And I felt better. So I sent it to my friend who was then director of CMDS Canada. And uh, he's an Irishman. Uh, you have to be careful of them. He read it. I, I, I sent it to him for his opinion. And he published it without my permission. But only in uh, uh, a journal of 1,500 copies. Uh, I, I didn't care because I know that the stuff an academic publishes is on average read by six people, including the referees, who sometimes don't read it either. Um, publication has got nothing to do with the transmission of, of the knowledge. It's all about careers and nothing else. They don't read my CV, they weigh it. And uh, I don't know, I stopped putting it in once I stopped needing it for annual reports. And it was about a hundred papers at that point. I have no idea how many I've written since. It's a lot more than I even remember. Uh, and in fact, it was coming down to this part of the world where uh, I 
had a, a, a moment of awakening because I did grand rounds in, in Mobile. And there's a guy there who somehow, he was head of surgery, I think, and I went to do surgical grand rounds. And as I went in, there was a table, quite a big table, that sort of size, totally covered with little piles of papers. I said, what are those? They said, they're yours. I didn't know about them because I, I never searched the web for anything other than scientific information. And I had no memory of writing lots of them because if people write to me and say, can you do 1,500 words on, I'll write it and send it off and I don't even keep a copy. Uh, it has to be about three or 4,000 to be worth keeping a copy. I mean, the, the computer keeps it. I, I, I just, nowadays, you can, you're not allowed just to write and forget about it. Somewhere on your computer, you can turn off again to embarrass you. Uh, that was a, a wake-up call uh, because for this guy, that mattered. So my little bit of repenting, uh, David Stevens then got out a hold of this as a talk, and to this day I don't know where it was recorded, an amateur recording, and he'd just come back from being a mission doctor who'd turned a one-man mission doctor to the best teaching hospital in Kenya in, in a lifetime, in half a lifetime, uh, an incredible performance. He's an amazing man in terms of what he can get done. Uh, Tenwick is a superb place, but it was a one-man hospital when he went first there. Um, anyway, he'd come. He was asked to come back here and take over CMDS and run it. And he, he's like you, uh, one, uh, wonderful Christians who want to do God's will, and. They think it has to be something like evangelism. David's father was an evangelist, the sort who gets down on one knee, you know, and beseeches you to come to Christ, you know. And David can still do that when the mood takes him. But uh, he took the shortest possible route through school to get to be a missionary. Uh, he got a very good mind with a little education beyond medicine, which is what many of you are doing. Uh, and it was well applied in Africa, and then he comes back, asked to run CMDS, and he's a smart man. This, I forget how many years ago this would be, but he was smart enough to see that the world was going to be a very difficult place for doctors, that all sorts of questions were looming on the horizon, and nobody was saying anything about them. And uh, then he got this tape, and he called me, and he said, uh, I've just listened to a tape of you several times i don't normally do that i said can't possibly be me i don't make tapes and he said it's your voice and i've learned that my voice is recognizable so i had to say okay what what's it what's it called and he said the myth of moral neutrality and i said well i've written a paper about that but i have no knowledge of the tape and he said there certainly is one but i want to send it out to my membership but I need a good recording. Will you come and make it? Now, I now know that it must have been 1994-5, something like that. Uh, so I think about it, because my wife was not around. Uh, she was in Africa running refugee camps for two years um, after the Rwanda war. So uh, I said, I don't have a travel budget. And he said, we'll look after that. I said, I know, I'll come. And I came down to a CMDS conference. And I gave two or three talks, which they recorded. And then at the end of it, David said, I'd like to talk to you for 
a while off the record, but with a tape recorder running so that I can take it back to the office and share it. Fine. Amazingly, this recording took place in what had been Tammy Baker's bedroom. You, you probably don't remember Tammy Baker. You will, of course, the lady with the industrial weight eyelashes who claims to be an evangelist, you know. And they had their ministry somewhere, I don't know which state it was in, and he all went bankrupt and he went to prison, etc. Um, but what was amusing me, and I had to listen to the recording afterwards, unfortunately it didn't show in my voice, was the mirrors on the ceiling, you know. It sort of adds to the Tammy Baker sort of thing. Is when she had sex, she needed a mirror on the ceiling. You know, that this, that's the world we live in. Uh, but fortunately it didn't show. But he went back and he didn't keep his promise. He sent it out to American physicians, 20,000 of them or thereabouts, and mislabeled it because he called it uh, highly intelligent uh, barbarians. Whereas what I'd said, no, highly intellectual barbarians. And what I'd said was highly intelligent barbarians, my description of American physicians. Uh, I get teased for it all the while, but a barbarian is someone who has no known history. And you, you don't know your own history. And when you don't know your own history, you're in great danger. Go to the first chapters of Exodus. When there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, what happened to the Jews? They became slaves. You're halfway there. Those who rule you are not like your founders. They know not God. They deny his right to be. He is of no concern to them. And if we do not come to life, we will become slaves. I mean, when Johnson said to black families in America, if you have a baby and there's no man in the family, you can have a pension. But if you're married, you can't have a pension. See what he was doing? Consciously looking for a political way to have a section of the vote that was dependent on the government. Did it work? Oh, yes. And what did it do? It turned decent, good people into victims. At the beginning of the 20th century, Tom Sowell points out, the best black scholar in North America, in my view, that the illegitimacy rate in black and white families was identical. It is not true that slavery destroyed the black family. Johnson destroyed the black family and what, and what went along with it. Uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb, marvelous scholar in the demoralization of Americans, put, spreads it out in the same way. She was a scholar of Victorian literature and she started looking at English history. We have a, a mild aversion of what's happened to you. And she was astonished to find at the height of the Industrial Revolution, illegitimacy was still in single percentage di digits, just as in America. Not anymore. We've lost our way. The family is fundamental. You cannot read the Bible without seeing that. And that there are not multiple forms of it. As Christians, we're not allowed to say there is. God is very clear, that's not the case. So these kinds of things were all in the back of my mind. And you can imagine what I felt like when I, my wife set up a website because people were writing to her saying, we like what he does, but 
he was not far from us, 50 miles, and we would have gotten, but we didn't know where he was. She said, I can't tell him what he wants to know, but I can put, I'm going to put you on a, your calendar on a website. And you guys all sit in lectures, uh, half listening, recording, uh, and browsing the internet. And I guess I come somewhere along that list because shortly after my website was started, I was going to Ann Arbor and Wayne State students called and said, we see you're going to Ann Arbor. You have to come through Windsor or Detroit. Would you speak to us first? And uh, I said, sure, what do you want me to do? And they said, it will be January the 23rd, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. We want you to talk about abortion in the medical school in the middle of the day. What would you say to that? Uh, this was where repentance was required on my part, and, and the next bit was coming pretty fast, as far as I could see, because it, it, I, I, I knew this was coming because a few over the last few months before that, from one afternoon when God was at work on me, and he, he was taking away the sheer pleasure I had in going to the lab. And that particular afternoon, I said, I just want to be in the lab. And uh, I got a good post. I said, I'm going into my office, shutting the door, I'm taking the telephone off the hook. And if anybody comes for me, I'm not having visitors this afternoon. And I sat down at my desk and I was pro-choice. I'd been pro-choice for a long while over rubella babies. And I asked myself the question, can I defend my position intellectually? And at the end of the afternoon, I knew that not only could I not defend it, but I understood now how to make the argument, make the argument in exactly the wrong way. And I didn't see how anybody would defeat me. My next attempt to avoid it, the outcomes I didn't want was to call a good friend, Father Robert Spitzer, who's a Jesuit ex-president of uh, Gonzaga, a little school that wins. Uh, he's the, one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. He, he taught quantum physics and theology. Uh, there's nobody I know in America who willingly take on Robert Spitzer. He's still functional, although blind, but you can find him on the web. But first time I heard him, I thought, who is this guy? He, he prays like a Pentecostal, except the vocabulary they wouldn't understand. Uh, but the passion, they would. And uh, so I called him and said, Robert, I need a critique. And uh, he listened. And then he said, I think you've stumbled on the right way to do it. He said, that's the last thing I wanted you to say. I wanted a good Jesuit takedown. He said, well, the good Jesuit opinion is you've got to do this. And then Wayne State asked, if you're going to start it, you wouldn't go to a black college, would you? The black, uh, the black community has more abortion than anyone else, so they're going to be more angry than other people. But that's what God decided I was going to do. And I said, well, um, make sure that there's an escape hatch by the lectern because I want to run away fast after the lecture. Have the car running and take me to Ann Arbor. I didn't need to bother. The lecture ended in dead silence. Nobody said a word for about two minutes. And then there were one or two very respectful questions, including one from a Japanese woman. And of course, the Japanese, you probably don't know this, 
The Eastern Bloc, the Communists and the Japanese have the highest abortion rates in the world for the same reason. The Japanese didn't allow the contraceptive pill in because they knew they had a population problem. The end result is that Japanese women have nine abortions for every live birth. And the Communist Bloc was roughly the same, for the same reason. Uh, but her question was obviously coming from the heart, and there's no problem. And I've given that lecture now 80 or 100 times, uh, Oxford, St. Petersburg, Sydney, Harvard, the Midwest states, California. I haven't had a single aggressive question in any of those lectures. Everyone has ended in dead silence. And the last line is always the same. I have laid out two worlds for you. Which one do you want to give to your children? And it's the pro-life one. Uh, what we do wrong I wasn't going to do this, but I will now because it seems appropriate just very briefly. What I understood that afternoon in my office is that, as usual, I was starting the argument like most moderns with all sorts of undiscussed, undissected presuppositions. Every argument must have a premise that's self-evident. If nothing can be seen as self-evident, then nothing else can be proved. It's pure logic. Uh, Lewis puts it in The Abolition of Man at the end of the first chapter. So I wasn't doing that. I had become pro-choice because women were coming to me when I was doing infectious diseases before we had a rubella vaccine and say, I'm pregnant, I've got this rash, is it German measles? And I would say, well, it could be, but there are lots of viruses that produce similar rashes, but we'll take some blood today, some more uh, in a week's time, and I'll see you a day or two after that, and we'll work our way through it. And most of the time, it was reassuring, but every now and again, I had to say, I'm sorry, it is rubella, and then I would have to tell them what the odds were. And it could be anything up to 90% probability that they were going to have major cardiac and or neurological problems. I was a junior resident at that point, and we were taught to say, this pregnancy has gone wrong, has it? We weren't taught to say that, but that's the way I did it, because I, I'm good at doing that sort of thing. Uh, would you like to start again? What do you think every woman said? Yes, of course they would. Who wouldn't? It takes some time to adjust to a child with cardiac and neurological problems. Um, and I said, well, we can do that. You just have to come into hospital very briefly. It was strictly illegal at the time. The abortion was illegal when, when this was happening. I didn't do the abortions, but I facilitated them and organized it. They just went on the OR list as a DNC. Uh, I knew the police would never do anything. Uh, and I thought it ought, we ought to be safer than that. But, but I'd, it wasn't what mattered to me. Eventually, in Britain, uh, abortion rights were... Uh, not abortion rights, abortion was made legal by case law. It was only later codified. So there's a Catholic uh, gynecologist who was responsible and regrets it deeply in what happened afterwards. But he waited. It took him 10 years to get the case he wanted, which was a sort of 12-year-old girl raped by a soldier. And he did an abortion, went to the police and said, I want you to charge me. They said, oh, we don't do it for that. He said, I want you to. I want to go to court because he knew he'd win. And of course he did. So that was the legalization of 
abortion for rape by case law, and the lawyers have played with it ever since, and it was codified a lot later. But nobody at the time understood what the impact was going to be. So the question you're asking, or you should be asking your class between the pro-life and pro-choice is, and you need to work out yours more deeply, what do you need to believe to be firmly and intellectually defensibly pro-life and what pro-choice? And the answer, of course, is you must believe that you're going to be held accountable for the fact that you're made in the image of God. If you're just a product of time plus chance, as the Darwinian view would lead you to, then it's perfectly possible because we're all ultimately absurd on that view. The existentialists are right. If there is no continuance afterwards, our death is no more important than the death of an earthworm. That's the problem. That's why Kierkegaard is so important to read. We don't read him. Once you've got your premise that you go on, now, what you do when you're talking about any of these difficult situations, Thomas Aquinas's advice, you should have written down somewhere until it's written in your heart and then you forget about it. You need to write a, have a little book like this. Wherever you hear something said well, the only excuse you have for saying it badly is that you didn't write it down. Uh, write it by hand in a book like this that you can put in your pocket or in your bag at any time, uh, and they will become a kind of marker for your life. We had uh, a rule in our household that at Christmas and at birthdays, you could not spend more than $10 on a present. The children wanted to do it as well. That was the result of going to Africa. We can't spend lots of money on trivial presents, uh, having seen what they've seen. All my children spent their teenage years, children dying in their arms, but many more they saved. And that's one of the outcomes. The best solution I ever, ha I ever came up with, I gave each of my children a book rather like this. This is about the third of mine. Uh, I've lost a couple en route in university somewhere. I hope they weren't thrown in the garbage. I hope they got to someone's soul. Um, and I would fill the first 20 pages with some of my favorite quotations that I thought my children would appreciate. Um, they all did it. My youngest, my son, and we're, we're so alike, it, it's amazing. Uh, by the time he went to university, he got two of these books filled. Uh, he did a combined arts and science degree, and his Jewish professor of uh, Western literature, uh, Western culture, gave him an A-plus at the end of his course and wrote, Jonathan, you always seem to have bigger questions on your mind than I do. I will miss your essays next year. Uh, and he said, every topic she gave me, I already had three or four Christian scholars of the highest order who had worked out how you dealt with that question. Uh, it was like falling off a log to get an A at that level when everybody else is quoting last week's newspaper. You know, it's, it's a different world. So I'll pass it around. You can have a look. So, uh, uh, But it, make sure it gets back to me. That's your job. That's around the way. That process, 
I, I had no idea what it was doing to me and how it was working. But once I hit Wayne State, and it was all over. And I've been traveling ever since. God has plans for you that you couldn't possibly think of. Uh, I had no idea. And he spends as long as is necessary training people he wants before he sets them to work. Think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, until the, the road to Damascus, the last thing you could imagine was preaching the gospel. And all that went before was vital to what he did. Uh, that's how the Holy Spirit comforts. You see the truth? You're given the gift of repentance, and then out comes the spike ball, and off you go. Um, I mean, it's not pain. Uh, I have one of the most privileged lives on the planet at this stage. Um, yeah, you get exhausted. You, I don't get frightened anymore. You know, um, I've been in. So every time I get, you know, where it, what on earth do I do now? I, I don't even bother. You know, it's going to be all right. I was once dumped in Moscow, having carefully checked that I didn't need a transit visa before I went to get through Moscow to the Ukraine. But they didn't tell me that you had to get a visa to go from one side of the airport to the other, and it takes three hours, so I missed my flight. I got to the internal side where nobody spoke English, French, or German. Uh, and I was strictly illegal because I hadn't been able to get the visa and what do you do? I had one telephone number in uh, Moscow. Uh, I didn't know the guy, but the week before somebody had been saying, you might need some help in Moscow. This guy's a lovely guy. And I didn't have any Russian money, and I couldn't change any money because I, I wasn't legal. So, well, it's a communist state. I'll get on a bus and go downtown Moscow and not pay the fare. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, I got down and... The guy amazingly turned up later that night and we all got sorted out and I moved on. Um, it happens all the while. Oh, no. So now I, I quite enjoy it because I say, this will be another good story. Uh, that's the way it works. So welcome to the club you're really in and use all the facilities the club's got available, but they do cent center around a different view of love. What's the Christian definition of love? Laying your life down? Laying your life down? Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't make it quite that bad. He said laying your life down. If you love me, complete the verse. Hmm? Louder. Keep my commandments, yeah. It's pretty easy, isn't it? Love for a Christian is obedience. And you, every one of you, know which bit of your life is currently not under the control of Christ and he's going to take it from you. And you can't say you love Christ when you're doing something you know he hates. So you're back to the truth, to repentance, to comfort, and on you go. If you love me, keep my commandments. Have you ever noticed that in John 16, John, no, the vine, 15, isn't it? Yeah. 15? Yeah, John 15. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. My father has got the pruning shears. Uh, 
And Jesus says in that passage, you can do what? Nothing without me. That's not, there's no escape from that clause. It's, it's nothing. Uh, his grace comes in everything we do. If we do something, it is grace. That's why when we get to heaven, nobody will be any different to us because we'll all be there by grace. And a little hint of that you get in the life of Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest intellects that God ever made. Uh, the Summa are, are incredible, but Thomas spent all his life praying, uh, writing, and by his desk he had a kneeling stool. So whenever he got stuck in his writing, he simply got up, knelt down, prayed, and then went on again. Uh, what he did intellectually was the greatest feat since Augustine, greatest feat in about 500 years, but he never finished it uh, because a few weeks before he died, he was in the chapel one morning, Sunday morning, I don't know if Sunday morning, one morning, and he had a meeting with Christ. There was another monk there. He didn't see Christ. He only heard the conversation, which is very brief, and, uh, and could see that Thomas was in a different place. And the Lord said to Thomas, it is well done, Thomas. What do you wish? And Thomas said, only you, O Lord. And he never wrote another word after that. When asked why he'd stopped writing, he said, it's all straw. The greatest intellectual feat in 500 years was turned to, relatively speaking, straw for one conversation with Christ. That's astonishing, isn't it? We'll all be equal when we get there at that level. There'll be no pride, no petty envy, because we'll all be in the same relationship. We live in an incredible story, and we live as though it's not there. And so your task is to bring your story into your workplace. And it's not about feeling. Just take these phrases. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Consider yourselves dead to sin. If I am your Lord and Master, and I am, and I wash your feet, what ought you to do? See what Jesus does, what the Bible does, all the while? It doesn't say, feel better. We have agency. Let not your heart be troubled. And then he gives the reason why you can do that. But you are required to have agency in that. Anxiety, which is plaguing our, our world at the moment. Where do you find the solution to that in the Bible? What's the last chapter of Philippians? Paul is about to have his head chopped up, but he's not bothered by that. He's writing to the Philippians and telling a couple of women to stop arguing with one another and make peace. And then he says, make your request known unto God. And he will keep your heart and mind in perfect peace. And then he goes on. He's way ahead of modern psychologists. He says, now turn your heart and mind 
to things that are worth thinking about, whatever is good and pure and honest and all the rest. And he says, I've done this and I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I'm content at the moment and next week my head gets chopped off. He doesn't say that, but he knows that. And he's totally lonely. There's perhaps one person with him. It doesn't look like a successful end. But his relationship with Christ is such that that doesn't matter. He says, I've learned. We were talking earlier this morning before we started about translations uh, and how to use them, the ones that are really good on words when you have that theological type problem. And then you, it's, for different people, it's going to be different ones. But for instance, J.B. Phillips, who was the first person to uh, begin translating the Bible for a youth group, just like Peterson had 50 years later, was doing the same sort of thing. Uh, and you see how our standards of grammar have dropped between the two. Uh, 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 amazingly, J.B. Phillips had a terrible depression at the end of his life, and he, he thought he'd done nothing for God. Uh, but letters to young churches, the gospel, all the things that he translated, they help. And one phrase from St. Paul, uh, I'll never forget. I mean, I read it, and that's perfect. We are often knocked down, but never knocked out. That's a chapter from Corinthians, but it's one verse. But what a wonderful artistic insight as to how to express it. We're boxers, and we get knocked down often, but never knocked out. Uh, that's the Christian life. Uh, so, yeah, have multiple translations lying around, and you'll, you'll find the useful them. But remember which ones are which. I don't like many of the modern ones because translation by committees can be very, very bad. I call the NIV the nearly infallible wooden version. Uh, if there's something beautiful in the English language that was in the Bible, they will turn it to dull prose. Uh, my first test of whether a translation is worth my time is to go to Ecclesiastes. I looked and saw, behold, the race is not to the swift, nor yet the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to every man. That's poetry. It flows, doesn't it? The NIV has got no cadence at all. It, it, they've destroyed the poetry. Uh, the Bible is full of such wonderful things like that, and they have to be preserved. Uh, again, the conversation we had earlier this morning, uh, working-class people at the time of Shakespeare, could go to the Globe Theatre and get involved with the actors with what was going on. They understood it. I know you guys, uh, your contemporaries, they hate Shakespeare. And uh, Christians should not, because in order to understand Shakespeare, as Alan Bloom, the uh, atheistic, radical, homosexual Jew at Chicago said, you've got to know the Bible because there, there are biblical allusions on pretty well every page. And if you don't pick up the allusions, you're already reading at a much less than Shakespearean level. Uh, the language of the King James Version and the language of Shakespeare are very closely related. Uh, God's Secretaries is a lovely account of how the, the King James Version uh, was produced. We, we need to cherish, the, cherish these things. Uh, I say uh, to parents, 
you need to read the Bible to your children when they're very small. It goes in. Um, and I say, uh, in many ways, I would choose the King James Version because it doesn't matter to a child which one they have, not for theological reasons, but for literary reasons. And uh, over the years, I've had some wonderful conversations as a result. Uh, I mean, if I give an after-dinner talk in the States for CMDA, and I see a couple with a baby at the back, I know what's going to happen. They go, or I see... Uh, a grandmother who's really enjoying it. I know she's, got, she's going to come and tell me a story. Um, and they all relate to, to, to the Hittites' talk about fathering, uh, parenting from a, from a Judeo-Christian point of view, just to illustrate a couple. Uh, on one occasion, uh, a, a, grand, a grandmother came. Uh, I said, I've got a story to tell you. I said, it's about your grandson or granddaughter. She said, yes. She said that. My, I can't remember his daughter or daughter-in-law took little Jimmy to see the pediatrician uh, for a routine visit, and that went through very quickly. And uh, then mom was talking to the pediatrician, and little Jimmy disappeared under the couch behind the, the sheets that hung over. And mom finished with the pediatrician, said, Jimmy, time to go. And out from underneath the sheets came uh, the little voice, I'm in the Holy of Holies, you will have to wait. <laughs> Uh, I have innumerable stories like that. The other one that, that is recurrent in its format, and the last time it happened, um, I was in Philadelphia somewhere, Pennsylvania somewhere, I can't remember where. But after I'd finished the lecture, a young woman came in in scrubs. She said, oh, I'm glad you, you haven't gone yet. I wanted to be here, but I had to do a Caesar. And she said, I just wanted to thank you. And I said, for what? I knew what was coming. She said, I heard you talk about not waiting for us to plan our pregnancies. And my husband have done that. She said, here I am in the middle of residency. Some days are really bad. But when I get home, the baby takes it all away in 30 seconds. And my husband and I can manipulate the two jobs to fit them together. Yes, it's a struggle, but thank you, thank you, thank you. This happened again and again and again. Uh, it first happened in Blacksburg, Virginia. You remember a few years ago, there was a terrible massacre. About 30 kids were murdered by another student. And the week before that happened, uh, my wife said, you know, this is strange. You're usually away every weekend at this time of year, sort of springtime. Uh, uh, but you got a week off. I said, that's nice. Uh, then the massacre happened, and the next day, a physician from Blacksburg called me and said, are you by any chance free? And I said, yeah, why? He said, well, we're being invaded by grief counselors, and they had no idea how to cope. But you've been all over the world in all sorts of tragedies, and you do know how to talk about these things. Can you come? I said, I can. He said, get on the next plane. I'll buy the ticket. And so I went down, and, and I uh, gave a talk probably twice a day for about a week. Um, I, hope, I hope I was helpful, but uh, the more interesting thing that happened was that uh, a little while later, Ty Hopkins, it was the doctor, said, it's time you come to visit us again because I have a special uh, Bible study group of students who want you to come. 
I said, why? He said, they want to tell you. Uh, I don't know what he was talking about. He said, it's on Thursday night, so please come to Thursday night. So I did. When I got to the Bible study, I've never been to a Bible study before when there were nearly as many babies as there were students. And they held me uh, philosophically responsible for all of them um, because I had taught them about the need as Christians to start families. And the education system has been made it so that you're almost sterile by the time you finish it. That's ridiculous. Uh, when God brings your spouse into your life, get married and start a family. Uh, practice natural family planning. Uh, that allows you to say to God, prudentially, it doesn't look like it's time for us to have a baby. And if, if you use natural family planning properly, it's as good as the pill. But you are wide open to the Holy Spirit turning up and turning you on for one another, and you are not going to resist. Uh, you know, family, natural family planning parents know exactly when they conceived. They've not been having such a good time. They go away for a weekend at a hotel to sort of reignite the romanticism, and then she says, Ah, oh, you know what date it is? He says, oh, how could we do that? You said we couldn't afford a baby. You said you weren't ready. Well, maybe I am, maybe I could. <laughs> you do, and that's it. You're on your way. But that's what our world is supposed to be like. I just watched the girls here. Those little, I'm so glad they brought their little daughters with them. Uh, they, they're innocent, aren't they? And again, there's a difference between women and men. I mean, I've many times put a baby into the, the arms of a female, uh, medical students, I don't think I handle this, I'm having maternal urges. I've never heard a guy say I have paternal urges. <laughs> that doesn't happen until they get their own. If you want to see a guy suddenly shaken by reality, just go and sit outside the, the delivery suite. Uh, they, that is a moment of change. And then she says she wants to do it again. <laughs> but there you go. That's it. That's where it is. Uh, one of my best friends, he, he a philosopher, a, a Kantian at that point, uh, and he came out of the delivery suite at about one o'clock in the morning. He didn't sleep that night because the whole affair got to him. And he walked the streets of Toronto asking himself the question, what am I going to teach this guy? this little boy, certainly not Kant. That birth brought him back to his evangelical roots, which he'd left 20 years before. Suddenly realized, can't do this on my own. Um, they, these are moments when the church grows without even knowing it. America's very good at this. If somebody has a baby, it's a good time to get them into church. Uh, when your neighbor has babies in America and in Canada, the women will, will cook meals and deliver them for a, a while. That kind of hospitality leads from one thing to another. Uh, and they can, it, the more they make uh, it hard for us to be explicit about our faith, the more apparent it will become. In, in so many simple ways, you know, in the children's hospital where I work, where was a lovely hospital till the administrators got shot with wokeism and the like, early versions of. Uh, one of the moments that was recurrent uh, when walking along the corridors, we had a, a handicapped guy, both mentally and physically, but 
he had a job pushing the children to and from the OR. Yeah, uh, but if I met him in the corridor, he would greet me, rightly, because I was his brother in the faith, by my Christian name. And I would return it. And my colleagues, of course, they didn't know his name. And they didn't know how I knew his name. And eventually they'd ask. And who knows what that will do to them in the long term. Uh, the darker it gets, the brighter we shine. Now, how close to the end are we? We lost five minutes. I've got it out of hand. I've got to do one other thing. I want you to do what Bonhoeffer suggested. Are you, are you going to do that? Are you going to put into your prayers, Lord, give me a passage for me, for my life, for the next little while? If you all do that, because if you pray it, he will answer it. Uh, it would be well worth my while coming because it will change your lives. So I just want to give you a little introduction as to how it works for me. Uh, as I say, you, you can get a, two, a one or a two CD version of this talk from CMDA if you want it. It's still growing because for me it was the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think I told you about Agnostics Anonymous, right? Uh, the students wanting to me to apologize, I did. So as I walked away, I realized I did not know the Sermon on the Mount by heart. I could not give a lecture on it without notes, which I could do on obscure biochemistry. That, that's indefensible. The thing that's supposed to be most important in my life, I couldn't talk about, and things that really don't matter in the long run, except that few people need to know them, I could do. That's incoherent, utterly and completely incoherent. And there's a judgment day and I'm glad it's changed for me on that issue at least now. So I did. I applied the talents God had given me to the scriptures in a way that I had never ever done before. I'd done Bible studies and things, but not the way that this happened. And what you do first is you read it every day. Most people, it'll be a chapter or a few verses, but for me, it was three chapters. Uh, and very shortly, I'd memorized it. Uh, but that's only step one. Pure memorization, of course, it was written in another language, so we're, we're already looking one remove. What happens next is it comes to life in your language. Uh, and you begin to see that, oh my goodness, this is so much bigger than I realized. And the Sermon on the Mount is particularly for doctors. Because in Matthew 4, at the end of the Sabbath, after the sun has gone down, Jesus starts healing. We have a hymn about it. And I, I guess it probably went on till midnight. I don't know. But he healed a lot of people. The next morning, it says, Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up the mountain. Think about that. Jesus could have spent his whole life healing people. He didn't. And on this occasion, there were crowds of people waiting for him. It's like going to our patients saying, sorry, I've got to go somewhere else today. And Jesus said, I do nothing except what I've discussed with my father. Uh, and no doubt he asked a question. When I went to the place where they say it happened, I can, I can see it in my mind. I, they're probably right. Um, so he goes up the mountain. I think it's Matthew's conversion story, actually. That's why Matthew records it so well. I think Matthew probably ripped Jesus off as a tax collector. And Jesus 
was the first person who didn't get mad with him at all, but looked at him with pity. And he'd never been looked at with pity before. So he never forgot it. So when he heard that Jesus was doing miracles, he wanted to see. Ah, that's pure artistic license on my part, but it rings true to me. And I imagine him arriving just as they sat down, a bit out of, out of breath. He's made a lot of money, but at a price, he has no friends. Only the ones you get with money that disappear when the money disappears. He's an empty man. And the first words he hears are, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I'll explain to you how I read that. And then he takes him to repentance. Where does it go next? What's the next one? See, it's amazing. Very few Christians can recite the Beatitudes in order and certainly don't know whether the order matters. This is our Lord's first sermon, his longest public sermon that we have. We don't know it. Isn't that astonishing? Now, dispensational theology does that to you. I grew up in such a church, and it's not church age, is it? So it doesn't apply to us. That's, that's such rubbish. Uh, don't let it get in your head. The next one is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This actually was the last of the Beatitudes to come to life for me. Um, the, the means was a liberal professor, uh, uh, got his name at the moment, Scottish guy, who's brilliant on street Greek of the time of the New Testament. He, he's a storyteller too. He'll tell you the story of how the, the word's meaning can be understood. And meek is a lovely word. And we think it's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That, that is, forget it, that is totally wrong. Uh, the word meek was used to, to describe a horse that had been broken in, trained, so that it was now ready to ride into battle. Got the picture? You are meek when you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, ride me into battle today. That's quite a thought, isn't it? But that's what it's saying. I was, in, uh, I was giving a talk in Fresno a little while ago in a house of about 50 people, and a, a young woman burst in just before I started, a uh, very confident young woman, turned out to be a surgeon. But she said, oh, good, you haven't started. I think of you every morning when I get out of my car because I'm going into the Department of Surgery, the only woman surgeon, I say, Lord, ride me into battle today. <laughs> it's a wonderful use of the word. But that's what it's about. And does the horse have any big plans for the day? No, just obey. That's why we, ha we are supposed to be without fear. Let not your heart be troubled. How? By thinking about it. By saying, because I'm meek, I don't have anxiety. Because I'm under control by the best rider in the world. And you inherit the earth. Not the Lamborghini or the Ferrari or the uh, the spa tickets every week or whatever is your particular silly uh, obsession. No, that's not what's at issue here. You inherit the world of the family of God. Back to the Lord's Prayer in a way. Uh, it wasn't an accident. Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died at almost the same time. Which one was the richer of the two? If you say... Princess Diana is go straight back to blessed are the poor in spirit 
and start again. That's the way it works. It's an iterative program. You get so far, you get stuck. You have to go back to the beginning. You come through, you get a bit further. And it, it depending on the state of mind, it can take me anything hours to get through a certain on the map because it, it has so many ramifications. Mother Teresa was immensely richer than Princess Diana. She could land in any city in the world and people would fall over themselves to be able to do anything for her. And it wasn't fame they were looking for. They wanted to do things to be seen with Diana. They wanted to be with Mother Teresa. Uh, that's the way it should be. That's our riches, relational riches. Uh, and they're, 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 they're incredible. So what comes next? Well, now the rider has got work to do for you. And now you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see things around you, and in the end you have to do something about them, even though it's risky. Like, I had to be pushed into what I do. I was comfortable. It's an ivory tower. I, I had grants, never any problem. I published, never any problem. I never went to committees. The dean would uh, not do anything. Uh, the medical students could say I didn't spend enough time preparing lectures. Uh, he wouldn't do anything. I, why should he? I brought money into the place and I published papers. Students, they'll get through anyway, it doesn't matter. And that's one of the things you should remember. Once you've been in medical school for six weeks, we can't afford to fail you. We've already wasted too much money on you. So relax, you know. The worst that can happen to you is a, a referral, which might give you six months to come and do the course at uh, Augustine, which would make your life that much better. Uh, you sh we should be teaching our children to plan gap years, really. Uh, it's we're we're going to grow up like like hobbits who were not judged to be responsible till they were 30. Cobbits turned us into hobbits in that level. So think about your children hanging around your neck till they're 30, so sending them to a program like ours or short-circuit that so and the, and of course when you hunger and thirst for righteousness you will be satisfied you will have the joy that comes from doing that uh, and then that leads on to the next one which is blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy this is the one that's probably most needed in your church I when I'm preaching in churches can see in the congregation uh, faces that have not cracked in a good belly laugh for 20 years. They're carrying grudges in one way or another. Relational problems, particularly the women uh, in church. And that's got to go. It's got to go. Because it, there's a warning. It's the only thing Jesus repeats. If do you, Have you ever noticed what comes after the after the Lord's Prayer, if you'd gone on to the next verse, what would it have been? Do any of you noticed? Isn't that amazing? See, we read and we don't think, why is that there? What's the point of that? Well, it's this. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. That's not a threat. That's a description of moral reality that we have to live inside. So mercy is so needed in the church today. Everyone needs it, so it brings us together. That leads to the next one, uh, the one that 
I long to know more about and don't. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, like Thomas in the church at the end of his life. We do get to the beatific vision in the end. Some people get there earlier. When you meet the people who are, they're different. John Stott, for instance, he looked different. He was beatific, if you like. Um, it, it would be impossible to be angry with John Stott. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a bit grumpy, but, but not John Stott. And the people who knew him said they were sure that he, well, that he woke up in the morning to say good morning to the Holy Trinity. That's how real it was to him. Um, I'm not there. The next one, we are supposed to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And that should happen to you in your academic life because there's no more petty, vindictive, malicious, group of people than academics. They carry grudges for years. I mean, the Galileo affair was a grudge that had been nursed for at least 20 years. Uh, he, Galileo had made fun of an, a guy when he was a young man. and He never forgot it. And he pushed the button that he knew nobody could stop. It's happening around. And sometimes it gets so bad that they have to find a peacemaker. And it should be you, because a peacemaker has to be trusted by both sides, and we should be trustworthy. I have experienced that. Uh, and when I le left a little early, uh, you know, there were some people who were by no means Christian who said, we're going to miss you. And it wasn't for academic reasons. It should be like that. Uh, and that leads to the next one, and we need, it's the only one that's repeated right there, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And note what comes next. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. Rejoice. Well, this tells you something important about rejoicing, doesn't it? Rejoicing is not a feeling in the Bible. It's a command. You are to rejoice. So that doesn't mean putting on a happy face when you're miserable. What it means is, okay, I've got to step back, and in this case, go right back to the first beatitude and work your way through the way God has been forming your character for this particular point. And you can rejoice. Why? He gives, Jesus gives you two reasons. Look at the company you've joined. People have been here before you. You should be proud of the company you've joined. And secondly, you know there's a reward for this, and it's in the safest bank that's ever been made. It's in heaven. And you have a reason to rejoice. And then that character formation process should be daily. And certainly in my life, the Sermon on the Mount will appear in my mind at some point in every 24 hours, somewhere. Usually it's in the middle of the night. I'm not good at prayer. So the good Lord wakes me up in the middle of the night to basically say, I've missed you again today. And the middle of the night is the time when that gets sorted out and I do my prayers and I go back to sleep. Uh, I look forward to it. I don't mind waking up in the middle of the night. I know what it's for. So I, I say Christians don't suffer from insomnia ever. You suffer from failing to hear that you've been called for fellowship. Nah. Uh, 
songs in the night, the psalmist calls it. There's at least three psalms that talk about songs in the night. He doesn't mean bellowing out a happy song and waking everybody in the house, but he means the song in your heart as you sort out your life and get straightened out again. Only then can you become the two things that you're meant to be wherever you are, in your family, in your church, in your workplace, salt and light. And I'll just say one thing about salt because uh, it, it's such a, when you see it, it changes it and then I must stop because his lordship's getting anxious. Um, salt in the Bible is not the stuff you have in the salt shaker. That's pure sodium chloride with a desiccant. But what was it in the Old Testament? What was it in Bible times? Well, it was rock salt. And it's so, deposits of rock salt are quite large, but there are many of them. So salt is very limited. Africa in particular doesn't have much in the way of salt. Uh, so the, the Latin word for salt is salaire. Can you see what word that gives us in our modern world? Salary. You could be paid in salt. That's how valuable it was. So uh, when we're salty, uh, you've got to think of it in these terms. Now, what was it used for? It wasn't used to taste primarily. What was the primary use? That's right, preserving food. So this a little earlier, this every fall uh, in our area of the, the world, the housewife would go and salt down some fish or some meat for the winter. So you had salt fish and salt meat for the winter. Now, she'd go to the market and buy a sack of salt, and she'd put her finger at the top to make sure it was salty, and a good businessman made sure that it was. But they all knew the experience, so every, uh, every now and again, they'd buy a sack of salt, which had been outside the shop when there'd been an unexpected downpour. So a couple of inches of water on the ground for a few minutes. But sodium chloride is highly water-soluble. So it's leached out of the bottom of the bag, but rock salt is mainly other things like aluminates and silicates and all sorts of things that are in there. Uh, and salt, which is a critical component for this purpose, is not the majority by any means. So here's the, the perfect analogy of how the, me the medium is not the message. Uh, when it dried out, the sack looked perfectly normal, but it wasn't. And the housewife knew about this, but of course you get tired of tasting salts. She, put some fish, put some salt, okay, and she forgets. And then a few weeks later, the meat or fish starts to stink. Does she blame the meat and the fish? No, she blames the salt. See what that means about us? When we wake up and see horrible things happening in our community, whose fault is it, according to Jesus? Ours. Ours. When we are salty, the world is better. We've, we destroy what is good and preserve what is evil. And then you become the light of the gospel. But the saltiness is the lead in to the gospel. Now, the uh, esteemed leader back there has a surname, uh, Baxter. Do you know the story of Baxter? You have a, a very famous name in Protestant literature. Yeah. Uh, I always forget the Christian name, but he he was born and lived about 50 miles from where I grew up. He, he wrote about what it means to be a pastor. He was a Puritan. Uh, 
and the the village, the town that he went to, Kidderminster in uh, Worcestershire, was infamous at his when he arrived as being uh, out of order town. And he writes somewhere in one of his books, he says, "When I arrived, no one came when I called. When he called them to church, no one came." When he died, he said, when I call, everyone comes. And in his life in that town, he transformed the character of the town. So when I, to, uh, I'm sure it's gone now because of what's happening to Britain, but in my time, Kidderminster was known as one of the, one of the towns in the area that had the best workforce. And it all goes back to Baxter. That's what salt and light do they create new societies. Uh, how many of you have read the life of uh, the guy I consider to be your best president, Adams? There's a beautiful biography of him out there. Um, read it, enjoy it. And especially his wife, who's amazing. Uh, read biographies. I grew up reading Christian biographies. And, uh, you don't read them anymore. And that's a pity. Children love biographies. And there are plenty out there. Missionary biographies I grew up on, and I'm very glad that I did. Uh, the stuff that we feed to our children at the moment is so trivial, and they're capable of so much more. Uh, they ask such lovely questions when they read a really good book. They all love the Narnia stories, which are demanding. And don't tell them what it means. One of the joys of reading those kinds of books is seeing when they understand you can read the stone table and they don't realize the stories about jesus at that point my oldest daughter is a missionary she didn't get it till the last chapter of the last battle it's when uh she suddenly uh a little girl gone the name she says in our world too all the world was once in the stable it's jesus and this is that's when she realized who as i was um and then those things, when you start your families, when you've got stories that you've all read to one another, you read them again when you get to be teenagers. It's very interesting. Uh, we read all the Narnia stories again when my children were in Africa. That oh, was wonderful. Uh, and when you've got literature that everybody in this family has read, you, you have shorthands of all sorts. I mean, in our family, you only say, but he is, but he is good. When something's going bad, you just say, but he is good. That, of course, is, is uh, Mrs. Beaver explaining what a, that Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. Uh, and we need to rebuild our families on the basis of a common narrative. You cannot have a multicultural society. It's a contradiction in terms. Society can only be built on what you hold in common. You can't build it on difference. Uh, you're never going to have any fellowship between people who only have differences in common, if you see what I mean. It doesn't work that way. And we missed what we were talking about. The Muslims got it right. Uh, do you think any Muslim would allow the Quran to be taken out of school in a Muslim country? Absolutely not. Neither would we until about the 1950s when you did it didn't do it in England at that stage. Because the story provides the foundation for the formation of character. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is giving you a way to develop a Christian character. 
so that you can be useful. Try it just for a week to go through the Beatitudes, which you can learn fairly easily. Write them down first by hand. And, uh, you will find that it begins to change the way you do things very quickly. That's the way it works. And I must stop. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for chances to come out of the world at large and think about how you want us to be your disciples in our place at this time. We pray that we may get to know you more, that we may begin to understand what you mean when you say that you will live with us. Comfort us in the biblical way, O Lord, and give us the dignity of causality which you intend us to have for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you guys all for listening today. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a comment, leave a review, or share it with a friend. And if you have a question for Dr. John, you can ask that at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can check the links in the description below. Thank you guys all so much, and we will see you all next week. Mm -hmm.